We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If I ventured in the slipstream this episode of Inside Golf Podcast is brought to you by RickRedKid.com. All of the stats, tools, and info that I will be discussing on this podcast can be found over at RickRedKid.com. Listen, I warned everyone, the fall swing is the most profitable time of the golf year for me by a healthy margin. We have played three golf tournaments this fall, and we have hit Sahith at the Fortinet, Max Homa, 11 to 1, top American score. Rory, 9 to 1, top overall score, plus a bunch of other Ryder Cup bets. That was an 11 unit week. And now Luke List in a five man playoff, 55 to 1 at the Sanderson Farms. We are up over 26 units with a 292% ROI through three weeks. Just absolutely unheard of stuff through three tournaments in the fall swing to get my entire model. That is the number one reason why I have had so much success this year, not to mention access to me for any golf betting slash DraftKings questions that you may have in that premium Slack channel. Head on over to rickrungood.com. Go to the sign up page, type in code Andy when you sign up. And you will have access to all of my golf information, my model questions for me, as I mentioned in that Slack channel, my Wednesday final DraftKings thoughts, not to mention the best ownership projections, model builder, and all of the data that Rick already has on the site to do your own research if you want to go in that direction as well. There's massive opportunity right now with this fall swing. If you are willing to do the legwork, I cannot emphasize that enough. So head on over to rickrungood.com, promo code Andy, and we would love to have you as part of that growing community. If you are an NFL guy, shipitnation.com is your place for all of that. We are off to an incredibly hot start again in the NFL. I am posting all of my NFL picks in that Discord exclusively. That is the only place to get all of my NFL stuff, and you can use promo code Andy to take an extra 10% off. I love the board this week in the NFL week six. I was okay in week five. So I ramped up my research for this week. already made a big play on a game on Sunday. Uh, I would sign up now because I think that line is going to move. I also post 
all of the props I get from my Vegas guys in there as well. It is a money printer right now. So strike while the iron is hot. Shipitnation.com code Andy to get you that 10% off. All right, coming up on this podcast, some Shriners picks, some closing Ryder Cup thoughts, uh, even some David Beckham Netflix documentary takes. All with my good friend Tom Jacobs of the Lost for Words podcast, DP World Tour Picks and Bets on Mayo Media Network. This is a good one. We get to a lot in here. So without further ado, let's bring on Tom. All right. Tom Jacobs is here. It's been a while, my man. Lost for Words podcast. Are you still doing DP World Tour stuff for for Mayo Media Network as well? Yeah, doing that for Mayo Media and for the DP World Tour uh, site itself as well now. So busy. Busy, busy, busy. Three or four shows a week when when at the best. Uh, so yeah, all going well. Hasn't been as much golf to talk about over the last couple of months, which has actually been quite a nice break. I think I'm sure you probably feel the same way. Nice to kind of get a little bit of a decompression after a long season, I think. Yeah, but the fall swing is a money printer if you're willing to do the legwork. Yeah. I mean, I, I I love the fall swing because it gives us the opportunity for all of the grinders that have been out here doing the legwork on some of these guys that are normally, you know, 6K golfers, 7K golfers, 100 to 1, 150 to 1. Now you kind of have the opportunity to say, I've been riding this guy, I've been betting this guy, I've been following this guy closely for a couple months on the PGA Tour when no one was really playing him. Now we actually have a tournament on our hands where he can actually win. That was kind of the case last week at the Sanderson. It's a respectable field, I would say, this week. You usually get some, like Cantlay uh, usually plays the Shriners. We're not getting him this year. I imagine uh, he's probably still celebrating the postmortem of his of his wedding. Could be a nice transition to discuss a couple of lingering Ryder Cup thoughts we have. But we still got, you know, Tom Kim, Ludwig. Much better field this week in Vegas, as one would expect, than we had last week in Mississippi. Yeah, I think so. And I think you're right, like about those kind of full series guys, if you like. I think the only difference, I guess, this time is you haven't got the guys coming immediately off the corn ferry like you would normally, I guess. Yeah. You've got the guys that are trying to get that kind of 51 to 60 spot uh, to get into Pebble and Riviera, which I didn't like initially, and I still don't know if I do like it. But when you actually get into it and think about the fact that these players can play into those kind of final 10 spots or whatever for those fields, I guess it adds another layer and dimension of, of what you're looking at each week. So um there's definitely a purpose to it so yeah i think there's a couple of players like you say that have probably been season long guys that we've looked at definite improvers from maybe two or three seasons ago um that can probably only win in these types of fields for now so yeah definitely plenty to to look forward to yeah i love this event i really do like this event i think it's it's nice to see a birdie fest i know people don't love them but i think at this type of course it's it's enjoyable you know you know what you're getting it's not kind of confusing what you're going for yeah, I think it's pretty laid out in front of you what you need and, and who's going to fit the bill, and I quite like that. Okay, we'll get there. I hinted at it when I mentioned Cantlay. I need you to indulge me on 20 or so minutes of just some lingering Ryder Cup thoughts yeah. that I have, which I told you we were going to talk about a little bit at the top. So as an Englishman, as a Brit, I are you do you ride for the European team? Like, Would you say that – I know you're a football fan as well – do you feel a kinship to the European Ryder Cup team? Is this an event that you would say every two years 
of course, you don't have the time difference struggles that us Americans, specifically on the West Coast, do having to stay up all night for this event. But where where would this rank in in terms of your pantheon of of sporting events? Because I know you're you follow a lot of sports, not just golf. And yeah. how would you how would you assess the the performance ten days out now of of your boys? So it's really interesting. I would say that 2012 at Medina and 2018 at the Golf National were two of my favorite golf events ever and obviously that comes with european wins right this time i was in vegas for the start of it and we kind of took a really early lead and it just felt like it was only gonna go in one direction after day one or day two morning right so i didn't have the same excitement about the event now that doesn't mean i wasn't absolutely delighted by our performance i think it was great i think the one thing you've got now is there doesn't feel like the same European and American divide that you used to have. It was very, very stark before. There was these these European guys that played a lot of European tour golf and they were very European sounding and it was a very different style of golf, grinders, all this sort of stuff. And now I feel like you've got the same type of players on both teams. A lot of them play predominantly PGA Tour schedules and even players that didn't like Fleetwood and, and Hatton before, they now do. So I think as much as I'll always be a Team Europe, you know, truther and, and always cheer them on, I don't feel like the kinship, if you like, is so strong because I don't, it's hard to separate the two teams. But obviously very happy with the win and, and will always be Team Europe regardless. You bring up a pretty good point. And I said this before on my recap podcast, but there were many reasons why the Europeans won it, it this most recent Ryder Cup in Rome. Marco Simone was not one of them, right? Like this European team was a very, they played a very Americanized version of golf, right? You're used to a lot of these more old school European teams, your Lee Westwoods, your Ian Poulters, uh, bunting it around, even such a stark contrast to Le Golf National, right? Like the Europeans brought over four of the best five drivers of the ball that either team had at their disposal. And they honestly didn't need to play any setup tricks with Marco Simone. I mean, there were a couple things. Azinger kept banging on this 180 to 220 yard advantage that the Europeans have. Like I saw that too, a little bit. I mean, the U S has a ton of killers from that range too. Like it was not, they did not have to play all the tricks that they did at La Golf National with, you know, having spectators stand 20 yards out from the fairway to not trample down the rough and making it this extreme accuracy and wedge fest. The relative skill sets of both teams were actually very equal. Um, And I stared at the numbers for this for like a really long time uh, coming into this Ryder Cup. And that's why I don't think that this home field advantage, and I, I know that it, it seems right now like winning a Ryder Cup on foreign soil is one of the hardest things to do in sports. I think this group of Europeans is completely alive at Beth Page yeah, because I, I, I think that the Beth Page that I know, and this is a golf course that I've played a number of times. Like that is a Victor Hovland golf course. That's a John Rahm golf course. That's a Rory McIlroy golf course. That's a Ludwig Ober golf course. Um, like this group of Europeans, how Americanized their style of play is, how used they are to seeing Tory Pines every week, 
Bay Hill every week, Riviera every week, Muirfield Village every week, and winning at those golf courses too. That's what I think is kind of more exciting to me about the Ryder Cup going forward is that now the Europeans have caught up in their skill set. And so, you know, that that home field advantage that everyone is saying is so stark right now. If you look at the skill sets of the actual teams, like winning on foreign soil shouldn't be as tough a task as it seems because the core setups, like there's there's not much to do in terms of course setup because all these guys play the same way now. Yeah, I, I tried to kind of emphasize this on basically every show that I went on that everyone was kind of saying, oh, you know, Marco Sony will be set up with the Europeans. That's how they're going to win. That's the best way to it. I said, look, it won't. The, the trouble is, is that what has really happened is we've got the European team. We've got three of the four best players in the world at the time. Ram, Hassan, Rory. Their strength, uh, Ram, Povland, Rory, sorry. Their strengths are the same as the American team, right? Driving. So you, we're not going to set it up any differently. We need it to be set up American, if you like, to, to win, to play into their hands. And really the the most important thing for Europe to win the Ryder Cup was to get the pairings right. It was as simple as that. We needed to make sure that Rory had the right pairings. It, it really was as simple as that. He, he's had some really strange pairings over the years. He's been tasked with taking on the rookie with Peters and Ollison and people like that in the past. And sometimes it's worked, sometimes it hasn't. Then he kind of got paired with, with Lowry, which I never really got at uh, Whistling Straits, right? This time around, he just needed to, he just needed to be picked with the right players. And I thought that was going to be Ludwig Aberg. It wasn't. It was, it was Fleetwood on day one and Fitzpatrick. And then it was Fleetwood again. And I think ultimately that was the best choice. It was rather than trying to split these players up and, and get the best out of them depth wise. I think actually putting Rory with someone that really could contribute to his team rather than him carrying changed everything. Um then you've obviously got Hovland uh setting the tone as coming in as probably the most informed player in the world at the time. Him going with Aberg and, and Aberg really pulling his weight. And I think everything changes when they win nine and seven against Scheffler and Kepka, right? Like Kepka's the best player in the world or world number one and, and Kepka's this guy that is very macho and doesn't take losing very well and they win nine and seven that just changes everything this was a captain's downfall i think yeah let's, uh, yeah let's talk about it like is Zach johnson the worst captain that america have ever had it's got to be close i think it's okay so one question i'll kick it to you on this one because yeah. my my answer to this might be a touch long-winded Okay. Do you think Zach is more at fault for the team that he brought to Rome or the pairings once he got to Rome? The pairings. I guess I guess a, a different way of wording it was could be could this American team, this group of 12 guys that Zach brought with potentially different pairings, could this team have won or made it a lot closer or did the fault come with the guys that he brought over? No, I think the fault came with what happened when they got there. I think okay. that ultimately, I think people will point to why did we take Justin Thomas and, and Sam Burns, right? Like, I get that. But I still think if you... And it wasn't even so much the pairings, it was the format that they were playing with. Like, why is Sam Burns playing forces? Oh, yeah. it, makes, <laughs> it makes no sense, right? So I think I think it was just the culmination of... He kind of lost his head when he got there. And look, it's, it's very easy for us to sit here in his armchair sort of commentators and, and people to sit there and think, right, well, the very obvious pairing was 
Morikawa and Max Homer on day one. That's something that I backed Max Homer as top USA scorer, thinking he was mm-hmm. going to play five sessions and four of them were going to be with Morikawa. Uh, obviously, that didn't happen. And, and luckily for my bet, he played really well with Homer, with Harmon. But like the, anything that seemed obvious, it almost felt like he tried to get too cute with it. Like everyone was saying Burns is only a four-ball partner, so he put them in foursomes. Um, everyone was kind of saying that Kepka was going to be this kind of black cat or whatever you want to call him. Like, so let's pair him up with the world's best player and, and hope for the best. And then you've got you, you split up Shuffle and Cantley after they lose one session. Like it was just it was just a really weird approach. Uh the, the kind of sticking with Justin Thomas and Speed when it wasn't working. Like there was just this kind of stubbornness of I'm not going to change what I've come here to do. And and one of the things I said before about Europe was like we've probably changed too quickly and too dynamically from the initial approach in the past and and it. But USA just wouldn't change anything and it made no sense. Um, So I definitely think short answer is that it was the problems when they got there as opposed to the 12 they took. I think it's both. I mean, I, you hit on perfectly and I've done 45 minutes on this in my recap pod and have written thousands of words about this before the Ryder Cup even started about the problem with Sam Burns in alternate shot, right? Like this did not take some sort of degree in advanced statistics or golf analytics to figure out that, hey, maybe pairing your most erratic driver of the ball in alternate shot with the best tee to green asset you have, you might be hamstringing probably the best thing that you have going for yourself. But the case for he got the team wrong, I think is pretty strong too. And I, and another thing that I wrote about before the Ryder Cup started, because going into the Ryder Cup, and you know this as a DP World Tour guy, Adrian Moronk was on that team, right? Yeah. And that, that felt like a foregone conclusion. And one of the things that I wrote about heading into the Ryder Cup was trying to figure out why they took Nikolai instead of Morocco, right? Both have won at Marco Simone. It it felt like a bit of a wash in the course history and experience front. Neither are really seasoned players in, in terms of majors or playing in high pressure situations. Moronk's older and has more experience, but he's a bit of a late bloomer too. Like Hoskar's pretty much accomplished just as much as Moronk has in, in a shorter period of time. And the reason I kept coming back to for taking Hoshgard over Moronk was that Hoshgard does have an edge in distance off the tee than Moronk. Now, Moronk is plenty long and Moronk is a little bit more accurate than Hoshgard. But the way that Hoshgard is able to gain more strokes off the tee than Moronk is he's got that extra five to 10 yards of juice in his bag. And you can, although it felt like Ludwig became a very uncontroversial pick. Like I'm sure there were many people that were like, gosh, you're taking this guy that was playing golf three months ago. And the conclusion that I came to is like, man, this team is playing in even in their back end to this, this strength that they have with Hovland, Rory and Rum. Like they are even, you know, making the back end of their team, these light versions of Rory, Rom, and Hovland these elite, elite, unbelievable drivers of the ball. And that's why I, that's why I think it's like borderline malpractice that the U S team 
didn't fight fire with fire with that and left two of the best nine drivers of the ball in the world at home in in Bryson and Cam Young. That's the big thing that I keep coming back to is the Europeans showed their cards a little bit about what their research on this course was, how this course was going to play. And the U.S. had an antidote for Hoshgard and Ludwig off the tee in the form of Bryson and Cam Young. And we can talk about the off the course stuff with Bryson. I know that's a little bit more of a messy situation and maybe he was already disqualified from, you know, Zach Johnson's calculus to begin with, but man, I, I I don't want to let Zach off the hook for that one because you dive deep into the numbers and Bryson and Cam Young those guys hang with not just Rory, not just Ludwig and Nikolai off the tee. Those guys can hang off the tee with like Rory and Rom when they're on. And I think I think the thing with I actually think leaving Bryson off rather than Cam Young was probably more controversial. And I say that because I think he would have made more of a difference than Cam Young would have done. Like I, I think that Cam Young would be great off the tee, but maybe doesn't convert the holes. Whereas I think Bryson is just a killer in certain situations, right? So Look, I think Bryson's not going because Kep was going and only one of them was going to make it. Like, it was just as simple as that. And it was far easier to to say, right, let's take the guy that's won a major this season and finished second than it is to take the guy that, you know, has, um, no matter how well he was playing on the other tour, right? So I think that is ultimately the only reason he got left off. I think the Hoygaard and Moronk thing is a little bit deeper in the sense that we had Thomas Bjorn as vice-captain. So I think that helped Hoygaard's case. I think also... What's the connection there, just out of curiosity? Because I might so have been privy to that. Both of them twins. Like he, He's Danish and he's, he's been a big mentor. And yeah. I think I think the other thing is like just long-term. They think that he's going to play in four Ryder Cups when Moronk might only play in this one at right. best. Like I think they're looking at Moronk as like, this is, as you said, a late bloomer who has just hit a purple patch. And look, I was very strongly advocating for Moronk, even over someone like Shane Lowry, right? Like, I, I think that it bothered me that Shane Lowry had never played at Marco Simone, hadn't had a great season, like top 10, like positions-wise, and obviously the, the data suggests he was playing well. In the end, he was a fine pick, but I don't think he really changed anything for Europe. And I think his biggest contributions was stepping in front of Rory and screaming for Hovland making putts. Like, He's obviously that team guy that also has a decent skill set as well. But I think if we were just looking for pure match winners, it, you probably should have still taken Hoygaard and, and Moronk. Aberg for a spanner and it works by by winning just before the Ryder Cup, right? So it's it's a tough like in the end, you can't you can't deny anything that Donald did was was right, right? Like it, it all panned out perfectly. But there's still definite questions on both sides. Just to put a bow on the Bryson thing too, because I I was thinking about this earlier this week, but can you imagine if, you know, like a, a Serbian basketball player was putting up 30 and 15 in the Adriatic league and an NBA GM was just like, you know what? I'm good. Like who's doing playing next weekend? Didn't even go to see him play. No, didn't, no. didn't even didn't even go look at him. It, it's it's malpractice, right? And yeah. and listen, I have a difficult time quantifying 
what Bryson's success on the live tour actually means, right? I, I will be the first to discredit the level of competition. I will be the first to discredit discredit the course setup on a week-to-week basis. I will be the first to discredit the pressure of what it takes playing on that tour on a week-to-week basis. And who knows? Maybe if Bryson was still on the PGA Tour, he would be finishing T27 every week, right? We don't know. But, Tom, but is it in play that Bryson is like a top seven player in the world right now? 100%. 100%. Like can we I, rule can we really rule that out, right? I mean, he did finish top 5 at the PGA Championship and it felt like all along with Liv you either needed to auto on the American side you either needed to auto qualify or win a major, which is what Brooks did. Yeah. But to me, the fact that you're not even going to go check him out, right? You're not even going to go say, "Okay, this was a guy that was a top five player in the world, won a major by five strokes, and now he's healthier, has lost 30 pounds, has not given up his distance advantage, still is one of the longest five players in all of golf, and finished top five at a major this year on a golf course with narrow fairways and thick rough. And you're not even going to go look at him? Like, can, can you imagine if an NBA GM did that or an NFL GM did that? Like, I don't even think Zach looked. No, he didn't. And like his approach play got better as well. Like that was like the main takeaway was he was hitting his irons really well as well. And I think, I think, look, the, the, the live discussion is really interesting because it is almost impossible to correlate success on there until they get to a major. And then you've got to try and work out like, okay, if it's someone like Brooks, who's playing basically every major of the season well then he's obviously playing well but that's brooks and majors and then you go okay well does bryson's top five at the pga is that enough well then you go and look at the fact he won by however many strokes on live tour and shot a 59 to win it right like i get the the discussion about the courses being weaker you've only got to look at someone like uh peter uline who's not been playing live tour as well as he did last season which he'll be the first to admit Came straight out, shot eight under par at uh, uh, Dunhill Links last week and led after round one and was right in the mix inside the top 10 going into the final round, right? So I think, and David Pooge had just won on the Asian Tour wire to wire. Like, I get that it's probably not PGA Tour level, but we just don't know. Like, if Bryson goes into the Shriners this week, he's probably third favourite, I guess, just behind Tom Kim and Ava. Yeah, fifteen like, to one, maybe. Yeah. So, so like he's won we, at that golf course before, by the way. For what it's and like. they, yeah, and they were never, and they were never taking a chance on Dustin at the majors. They were never taking a chance on Bryson. Really, I know he was a decent price, obviously at the PGA. He was, I think, he was triple digits, but like that's when he wasn't playing well until then. So, I think, I think the live discussion is really interesting in the sense that, like, we're just never going to know. Like, you've only got 48 players. They're only playing three rounds. It's shotgun start. There's less pressure. The courses are not great. They've not just suddenly become bad players, though. Like, no. Bryson, we were talking about Bryson being someone that was going to transcend the game. They're going to have to change Augusta again to Bryson proof, all this sort of stuff. Again, that never materialized, but he was changing the game and he was an elite talent. And people forget as well that he was an elite talent before he did all the distance stuff. Like when he first came out onto the PJ Tour, he had that rust spell, but then was great and 
like people quickly forget how good he was when he came out of college, right? So I think it's I think it's one of those ones where he was never going to go. It was it was already a decision made. It wasn't going to go, and the and the final decisions came down to Cam Young or Keegan Bradley, and as opposed to Bryson, right? But who are they more worried about seeing in four balls? Is it is it kind of Spieth and Thomas who are out of form, or Bryson who can hit it past everybody and was actually playing pretty well? Like it's Europe were pretty comfortable, I think, playing against everybody. Like the biggest fear they had was Scheffler. And they paired him up with Sam Burns in forces and just completely ruined his chances anyway. So they just gifted Europe a point, I think. But it's just, yeah, it it was a weird, weird team in the end. And I think the problem with the US team, and it's you say it's a problem, but like, or I say it's a problem, but like Clark and Harmon getting onto that team yeah. automatically just made everything so much more difficult. And then Harmon played well, but Clark was pretty terrible. Poor. Like yeah, he was really bad. I mean, he was even in Sunday singles, the second that they had a glimmer of hope, that match that uh Clark would who did Clark play in Sunday singles? Like it was that was get up that was a really winnable match. Like if you look yeah. at the strokes gained, like that match was playing some of the worst golf cumulatively between the two of them. Uh and if Wyndham was able to flip that one. That was the only, only chance. It was that Wyndham Clark and Ricky Fowler match. And the second we saw that red on the board, both of those two guys completely crumbled. And so but I agree they, with you that the Wyndham Clark qualifying, I mean, if he finishes second at the US Open, is he on this team? It's a good question. He might have been. He may have been, but you wouldn't have felt so. It's like the only reason everyone defended Clark being on the team. Look, again, I think this goes to the qualification. This is probably diving down a deeper rabbit hole, but like the qualification for this whole season didn't count. It only started in January and it included the majors and the players the year before. So it was a really weird process where they started it last year, but then excluded everything in the fall series and then went 2023 onwards. So it was a really weird process where like Keegan Bradley would have just been on the team if the Zozo counted right now. Is Keegan Bradley the answer? Probably not, but I think he cares a lot more than a lot of the players on the US team. And I think, again, that's a little bit lazy. Like, I don't think it's just because they don't care. I just think it was a really poorly managed team. Because you can see, like, when they finally got the pairings or the ideas right of putting Burns in a four ball, putting Homer with Harmon, they played fine on the Saturday afternoon. It was just too late. And then even on Sunday singles, they showed they could beat the players that should be beatable. They didn't beat Hovland. Rory, they got a half with Rahm. Like they didn't beat those guys, but they beat Aberg, Stracker, Hoygaard, Fitzpatrick, Rose. Like they did what they should have done. So I think it was just so poorly managed that no matter what team they'd have taken, they'd have just screwed it up somehow. I think. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think you're right. I think the answer to the question that I asked earlier is both. Yeah. I think that... Yeah. He could have done a better job with selections. He could have done a much better job with pairings. But I suppose who's who's the the brave call to like? Is it to leave out Thomas and Spieth because they just won't play well enough? Yes, I, yeah. I think I thought yeah. Spieth was unplayable. Yeah, Spieth was Spieth was terrible. Like, and that was when when Thomas came in and like everyone was focusing on him. I I thought it was Spieth that was the issue in that pairing, not Thomas. Like, completely, I was very, completely agree. I. Yeah. I I hit that big time right as when I, as soon as I did my course breakdown and ran a model for all the players, I was like, oh, Spieth is actually way bigger, way bigger of a problem than Thomas on this specific golf course. And both of them were bad, but Spieth was, Spieth was far worse. I I just think it shows that like Thomas won his singles and like, I just felt like he kind of caught a little bit of fire every now and then. Like he looked like he could do something, whereas Spieth never did. And you only have to look at the past Ryder Cup history to realize how good Thomas has been in Ryder Cups and Presidents Cups that he would probably find a way to get a point. So I think that actually taking Justin Thomas was completely justifiable in the end. He wasn't the problem. Yeah, he wasn't the solution either. Like statistically, he was like the eighth or ninth best American, but he wasn't the problem. No, I think that's the problem. Like I think they thought that the chemistry of taking a Spieth and Thomas... They, they've done a complete 360 from what they used to be. Like the Americans used to get by on like, we're just better than you and we'll yeah. partner up against you. Whoever we partner up against you will win because we're just statistically better than all of you. And now they've really leaned into this team chemistry thing that they never really cared about before. And it worked in whistling straights, but it probably was just the fact that they were better at whistling straights than right. the European team, right? Like it, I don't think it was a team chemistry thing. So they leaned into this kind of, like, oh, we've got Thomas and Speed that get points. We've got, um, you know, Shuffle and Cantley to get points together, and they're they're kind of unbeatable. You could probably put Homer and Morikawa together, etc. Scheffler and Burns are going as best friends. Like there's this massive team chemistry in the US we haven't seen before, and it it ultimately didn't matter. Like it because of the way they were paired up. So it was just it was really disappointing. I thought for the Ryder Cup that they were so bad, and that can work at whistling straights when you have a much better team. Yeah. But when <laughs> But this time on paper, the teams were almost equal and you could make a really easy argument at the top end that the Europeans top four was way better than the yeah. U.S.'s top the, four. The best thing that Europe did was they leaned on those four guys for the first time. They Instead of trying to get like everyone in Nine, two, and one. Those yeah. guys won 10 and a half points the entire – I'm talking about – um Talking about Hovland, Rahm, and Rory, of course. Those guys won 10 and a half points the entire U.S. team won 11 and a half. Like – 
the fact that they rode those players once now is that is a, a detachment from what they used to do, which is try and get everyone involved. And my thing was before, and to be honest, he actually stepped up and did okay in the end. But like my thing was like, you just need to sit McIntyre, you need to sit Hoygaard. They just need to be there to try and get four ball points or get a you know a singles point. And they did their bit, although I think Rose helped McIntyre an awful lot. Like I just think Europe played it well and the the, the worry was that Europe's back end was going to be too weak and Europe and USA had this kind of massive strength in depth. But those depth pieces of Wyndham Clark, Ricky Fowler, Sam Burns just didn't didn't turn up. Like it was plus, just Yeah. Plus also it's it's probably gonna get lost in this because the big three for Europe was so good. <laughs> Tyrrell Hatton and Tommy Fleetwood gave you ceiling performances. Hatton and Fleetwood were unbelievable. Yeah. And and it's, so the roadmap middle season, and I and I yeah. honestly, I honestly think the biggest thing that's happened for those guys, and I brought this back a little while ago. I think it's been this new schedule on the PJ Tour that's made every event so important that they've just had to play an American schedule all year. They've not been doing this back and forth to, to Europe. They've just had to play the best players every single week, and they've just been better players because of it. Fleet was look like he's going to win three or four times this season again. He's having those own problems. Hatton's not got over the line, even being whatever he was, top five in strokes gain total. But having that kind of repetition of going against people, and I think that's why Harmon and Clark won their majors, I think it benefited the European team massively. I think one of those guys is going to win at Troon this year or next year. I think I think Hatton, Hatton or Fleetwood, I think one of those guys is going to cross the yeah, finish I think, line at Troon. I think, I think definitely like this, definitely live. And I think that, um, I just think Fleetwood deserves so much right now. Like I, I thought it was Hatton, but I think Fleetwood's just playing so well now that he deserves this kind of big win. Um, and it's just become this monkey on his back of not being able to win on the BJ Tour. And as soon as he lifts that, he'll be fine. I don't like to make these kind of these big wild calls that once he wins one, he's going to win ten because I, I don't necessarily believe those. And never seems the floodgates. Yeah, I don't like that phrase at all. Like it always, oh, if he just makes one part, he's going to win everything. It doesn't work like that, but like. There's no reason why Fleetwood can't end his career with like six PJ Tour wins and a major. Like it's not, it's not impossible. He just needs to get the first one again. Should we talk some Shriners, my man? Let's do it. Okay. So any any thoughts on the golf course uh, before we get into the odds board? My preview article is up on RickRinkid.com currently, so I'm not going to belabor a lot of the things I already have written about. But anything you want to add before we dive into the odds board about? TPC Summerlin, pretty vanilla. Uh, I'll yeah. just start there. Yeah, like uh, when you say, is there anything bad? Probably not. Like I think <laughs> it's one of those ones that at the end of the day, like two of the last five winners are ranked first in tee to green. The others are ranked second and third. The only person in the last five that didn't rank in the top three for tee to green was Kevin Nahr, who just putted the lights out. And you've got to make a ton of birdies. Like I think they've averaged 24 birdies over the last 18 winners, if you exclude the and that year, right? And it's been 23 under, 23 under, 24 under, 24 under. So what you see is what you get. It's wide open. I think I think it's wide open, but you do have to be in the fairway. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a little bit kind of, you do have to take advantage of kind of setting up those opportunities, and that's just so you can make the amount of birdies you need to make. I think there's a certain level of player that comes and wins this. Like as much as people, I think a lot of people see this as like a breakout event, but actually... Each of the last 12 had already won on the PJ Tour. So, and that includes Tom Kim, who'd already won at the Wyndham. So, as much as a couple of my picks will be breakthrough players, like it's younger players, but ones that have 
that have won already. And that goes back to kind of Webb Simpsons and the Tom Kims and Sung Jay and people like that have all kind of won. So nine of the last 12 winners are under 30. So I think you've got this kind of, or 30 are under. So you've got this kind of young, reasonably experienced player that has won before, taking advantage of a course that doesn't ask too many questions, right? Like I think unless there's some weird weather or anything like that, I don't think there's anything too much to look into. I think I think the real thing for me and the reason why I think that you have to have had this winning experience before is I think it's really hard to keep the pedal down on Sunday to make the amount of birdies you've made if you've never done it before. Like you see these people and they kind of hang around at Honda or Valspar or whatever to break through because par is good enough sometimes. But you're going to have to go four or five under on the final day to win. And I think that's what changes the approach here. So as much as I think I'm going to lean towards some guys that could break through for their first wins, like ones that have got one or two already are, are definitely favoured based on the statistics. There is this mini tier of four players below 35 to one, and then it kind of drops a little bit. I'm looking at the odds checker golf grade right now. Tom Kim market is 11 to 1. Ludwig market is 12 to 1 ish. Then you have Cam Davis kind of pricing out around 22 and Si Woo at 25 at most spots. And then there's kind of a drop before we get to guys like Shank and Cole and Spawn and Poston all in the 30s. Are you betting any of those guys at the top? Those those top four, the Tom Kim, Ludwig, Cam Davis, C Wu division. No, I was close with Cam Davis, but I still just yeah. don't believe he wins at these odds. I think he's just the type <laughs> of person who just wins at 60 or 80 to one. So I'll just leave it. Like Ava was so good last week, bearing in mind he'd been in the Ryder Cup the week before, but I feel like he's gonna have to burn out eventually. Uh so well think about Rome to jackson mississippi to vegas you are hopping three time zones nine hours in what 10 days i i know that i've just come back from vegas and it took me all weekend to get onto the right time zone so as much as i don't think these things matter as much for pro golfers anymore because of the comfort they travel in and all that sort of stuff like it's still got to be rough and i just i just think that Sometimes this golf course takes a little bit of getting used to, even though it's quite in front of you. Mm-hmm. I, obviously, people are going to look at it and go, he's a big driver, they're always going to take advantage of it. But I just think he's going to go out eventually. I don't want to touch Tom Kim as a favourite at the moment. Like, I, I think he's getting himself back to what he was doing a season or so ago. But I, I'd probably just wait for him in 2024 now at this point. As I said, Cam Davis was too short for me. Sibu Kim, no. So really, it was that kind of 35 to 1 range that, becomes very interesting and there was two in there that i really liked and one that i think you're going to probably touch upon that that i also completely see the case for shank i'm gonna guess yeah Yeah. very popular selection from what i've heard this morning i haven't done a lot of twitter perusing it's columbus day for us so i got out on the golf course this morning i bet shank at 35 he's as low as 22 uh, or 25, but I just think that this is a player that was knocking on the door last year at a pretty consistent basis. He was, he lost in the playoff at the Valspar, made it all the way to the tour championship. And then 
really held his own against the best players on the PGA tour that season. Like he gained six strokes on approach at East Lake finished top 10 at the tour championship. And now he travels to a golf course that he's been pretty wonderful at. And that fits his skill set to a T like the name of the game here. And this is part of the reason why I'm, I'm not a huge fan of paying up for a guy like Ludwig this week is this golf course neutralizes some of that elite skill set that a Ludwig has. Um, it devalues off the tee, in my opinion, a lot. And and the winner is going to be the guy that makes the most putts from t- five to 15 feet, right? This is not a golf course that, in my opinion, creates a lot of separation from elite to middling tee to green play. And thus, I want to be targeting the guys that are the best wedge players and the best putters from five to 15 feet. And Shank completely fits that bill to a T. I mean, he passes that test with flying colors. So that that was an easy one for me. I think what I like about someone like Ken Adam Schenk is that seven of his top 10 performances in OWGR come in 2023. That's just a clear sign that someone's improving, right? Like runner-up at the Charles Schwab, runner-up at the Valspar, um, you know, seventh at Memorial, big field, fourth at the John Deere, sit for the Federal and Juice, sit for the Tour Championship, like you said seven for the Rocky Mortgage, it was just consistently doing it. And then when you look at his kind of second best effort in terms of result, it was the Shriners in 2021. And I vividly remember that thinking, no, he's not going to be able to do it. And obviously he didn't. But that goes to that point I said about that you need to still, it's no good being electric for three rounds. You need to put the pedal down in the final round. And I think he'd have taken a lot from that experience in 2021. It seems like he's already built on it and learned on it. He hasn't won yet, but only, what, I don't know, 30-odd players win in the season. So to expect him to win on the two or three chances that he's had so far is is probably unfair. I've certainly become a little bit of a apologist for people that lose in contention for the first time recently. And I, I think him and one of the guys I'm going to talk about later, they're both just really building their sort of experience in contention and just taking their game to another level. So I think Schenk is a fine pick. The two that I liked were yeah. Give, give me your other guys, and then I'll give you. I'll throw another one back at you. Yeah. So JJ Spawn and Tom Hoagie for me were the two that I yeah. thought stood out. I mean, Hoagie is just really obvious, right? Like he's got fourth, seventh, and fourteenth here. You see those he's ball done. striking numbers from Wentworth? Did you guess? Do you guys have access to those? The he he gained like nine strokes on approach and finished top fifteen in a good field at Wentworth. Really good field at Wentworth, and. It does set up as a decent golf course for him. Like There's no getting away from that, but you wouldn't necessarily expect someone like Tom Hoagie, I think, to travel and play that well. Um, so I think that the fact that he did was pretty alarming. The fact that he finished the BMW Championship with a 65 was obviously impressive, and then he finished 13th last week, suggests that he's now in the form to to go on and do that. So I did like Hoagie a lot. He I think he opened up at 50 to 1. He's now 33, so that's obviously a bit of a drop, but I think it's fine. And then Spawn, I just think, is someone that has found that level of form that I thought he was going to continue after he won for the first time and it's back to pretty much consistency 33rd 10th 37th 38th 24th 11th um the 11th obviously coming at the force in that recently so I think he's now coming to the level of spawn where he's back into that consistent basis now I think both of them have dropped a little bit from kind of like 50 and 40 to 1 respectively but spawn I mean 10th 15th and 15th here is really impressive he was a 54 hole leader when he was 10th um again just struggled to put his foot down in contention for the first first couple of times and then last year he was he bounced back from a a couple of mediocre showings here to shoot a final round 64 so he definitely knows how to do it 
I think I would lean Hoagie over Spawn currently just because the ball striking looks a little bit more reliable. So I think that's the one that I can kind of swallow the, the drop in price a little bit, but they're definitely two that caught my eye. Uh, I like both of them. The guy that I would add to the mix as well yeah. is JT Poston, who yeah. JT Poston is the type of player where I think 10 years from now, we're going to blank and say, how did JT Poston have like the same number of PGA Tour wins as rookie Fowler? And the reason <laughs> why the reason why I say that is because there are very few players on the PGA Tour that are better at like getting the most out of their good weeks is Poston. He does a really excellent job of pairing his great putting weeks with his great iron weeks. And you look at the results and even, you know, Poston finished last year. He didn't get that win. He's He has won twice. He's won at the John Deere, at the Wyndham, two golf courses that are very similar in the sense that like your foot needs to be on the accelerator at all times. Those are track meets, birdie fest, Poston infamously won that probably not infamously. There's probably very few people that actually know this fact, but Poston did not make a bogey all week when he won uh, the Wyndham a couple of years ago. Uh, that's a little bit more niche than I, than I think I want to give it credit for, but Poston finished the season. Like the guy went six, six, 41st, second, seventh, 24, 22nd, made it all the way to the BMW championship where he actually was really close to qualifying for Eastlake as well. Uh, and now he gets to a golf course where it's wedges and putting again. And, you know, it should not come as a surprise. He's finished fourth here in 2017. Like he is pretty darn deadly. I have him as long-term, probably the best putter in this entire field from 10 to 15 feet. And I think that that's going to be the story at the end of the day here. He ranks third overall in easy scoring conditions. When I filter out the easiest golf courses on the PGA tour, where birdies are the name of the game, uh, and it's a different style of golf, right? Like it's a different, you have to have a different mindset of going low, right? This is the type of golf that JT Poston thrives in. Not really the type of golf that Matt Fitzpatrick thrives in, right? Like Fitzpatrick's better on golf courses where par is a phenomenal score and the entire mindset, the strategy of how you play that, this, this golf course is very, very different, right? It rewards completely aggressive play. And I think these are the types, the types of golf courses that you want to play Poston on. It's a really lazy comparison, but he's just Webb Simpson. Yeah. <laughs> like he's like if you literally told me that he was Webb Simpson's twin, I would yeah. <laughs> think it. Like I mean, look, Webb Simpson's won a US Open and he's won seven times, including players, and he's lost five playoffs. So I don't know that he's necessarily gonna have that career, but it's the same player. Like it's literally he gets hot with his passer on the right weeks, his birdie and wedges are great. And I mean, they're both from Carolina. They're both the type, they've both got the same limitation off the tee. It's the same guy. Like, I, I don't think he's going to manage to win a major, but I think a lot of people would have said that about Webber Simpson when he won it. So it's only retrospectively you look back and think, oh, Webber Simpson was actually an elite player for some time. We remember that he went five years without a win between winning the Shriners and winning the players. There's no real reason I don't think the Poston can't win here and win a player's it would be a bit weird, but I think it's possible. So he's the type of player that can win it. So yeah, I think he's basically just Webb Simpson reincarnated. And I think that he's always a he's always a reasonably guarded price or something like 35 to one in these types of fields, this level of field. But that is he's the type of person that succeeds. Whereas I think Cam Davis don't want to take a 22 to one post and fits the short number at the time. Right. 
Right. Far more comfortable betting posts yeah. at 35 than Davis 22. Uh, I've kind of peppered this range. I've got two or three more guys I want to highlight. So let's just go back and forth. Is there anyone else in this range that you want to give a shout to? 30 to, I mean, open it up all the way to 60, 70, 80 to one, whatever. So the next pick for me is Sam Ryder. And that was the person I was kind of alluding to that I think is very similar to the Adam Schenk in terms of improvement. Yeah. Uh, I think his whim, I thought his whim was going to come in California. I thought he was going to do it in Napa when he finished 14th and was sick for the halfway. But he's a you know good player at this golf course, right? Like he's finished third, he's finished 18th, I think he's finished 28th as well. Like he's been really solid for the most part. He's had six rounds of 66 or better at this golf course. And he had eight, uh, four top eight finishes last season, which is by far his best career to date. So when I talk about that kind of career progression, I think Sam Ryder got it. Over the last kind of 15 weeks or so, there's not been 15 events in that time, but he is top five in strokes gain approach. He's top 15, I think, in tee screen overall. He's just been really solid ball striking wise in that time zone. And look, it's a West Coast thing. It's, it's not California, but it's, it's West Coast enough, right? So you're better at that kind of geography than I am. But like at the Shrine, he's been third where he finished for 66, 62 over the weekend. He was 18th where he was fourth going into the final round. And he was 28th last year, where he was ninth at the halfway stage. I just think he's been really consistent at this golf course. And now he's at the level, I think, to take advantage of that and contend. And I think it's very similar to the Schenk thing, that I think they've both had chances when they weren't ready. And now they're both capable of winning. So I just like Ryder for very much the same reasons as Schenk. And I just thought he was a bigger number, or he's a bigger number. Uh, the next guy I'll throw out to Andrew Putnam. I think he's in the 40. What'd you get Ryder at, by the way? Uh, 66. Yeah, you got a, um, he was looking pretty rock solid at the Sanderson too. And then I think he shot plus one on Sunday. I was tracking him. I think I had a top 20 on him at Sanderson and he kind of struggled on Sunday. I guess the, the positive side of that is that you're getting him at that sick. I think he's like under 7.5 K in DraftKings too. I think he's around seven. He was one to open, which is what really drew me to him. But yeah, 66, 66 is more than fine. Putnam's closer. I got Putnam at 45, I believe. And he fits the exact mold that, that we've been talking about. No need to belabor the point. Just a really rock solid wedge player. One of the better putters in this field on bent grass and from five to 15 feet. Uh, he has had a tremendous amount of success at this golf course and all of the golf courses that I am looking at in comparison. There are a number of golf courses that devalue off the tee play and place a much greater emphasis on putting from five to 15 feet and wedge play. I'm talking about golf courses like the American Express, well, that three-course rotation at the American Express where Putnam has been spectacular. Pebble Beach is another one of those uh, where Putnam has been wonderful. And you're kind of getting a little bit of um, not by low spot necessarily in this field, but he missed a cut at the Fortnet, gained four strokes ball striking, and had a very uncharacteristically poor putting performance. Um, I think if Putnam hit the ball the way that he did at the Fortnet and we see some positive regression back to how he normally puts it and chips it. Uh, he's a slam dunk to, to be at least in the mix. Uh, and I honestly think that a lot of these guys like in the 40, and I'll talk about because I really high in Bizaden out this week, 
going to keep riding Mark Hubbard. Like a lot, a lot of these guys in the 40 to 60 range, like if you can get this range, right. And maybe this is a conversation more for DraftKings as well, but I really do think that of course we could see Tom or, or Ludwig blow the doors off this place, but there's just so many, so many plug and play guys that actually fit this course really well in, in the 30 to 60 range. That's where all of my bets are coming from this week. I've got like six of them. Yeah. I think the, I think it's thin between Kim and, and the, and the likes of Putnam and that, that it's not going to be this kind of stark difference. It's not like John Rahm over in Spain this week where no. you kind of have an elite player. It's he is an elite player, but he's not in terms of skill set. He's not going to separate himself. And like Putnam's been the third six hole leader here. He's been third after 54 holes. I love the fact he's been involved. I actually really like the fact that he's won the Barracuda. It's the highest, you know, low scoring event where you have to, you know, high range of birdies and eagles, right? Like, I don't think there's anything too much to the golf courses themselves, but just the the kind of mindsets keep scoring is what really appeals to me. And that will come up again in, in one of my later things. Mark Hubbard, he's either destined to never win or he's just going to win very, very soon. Like he's, him and Jaeger feel like the guys that, that really need to win on the PGA Tour soon because they're wasting a lot of opportunity and, and skill set. Uh, I was on the golf course for the end of the Sanderson yesterday was very pleased to find Luke Les cross the finish line for me. I, I probably would have had no interest watching that five-man playoff, but Hubbard like three-putted from 12 feet to miss out on that playoff. Huh? That would have been another guy I had in the playoff. He, he's he's just one of those people that I just, I think he's a little bit like Joel Damon in the sense that they didn't believe they're good enough to win on the PJ Tour and they're yeah. still making a living and then eventually they'll win and then their mindset will change. He strikes me as that type of player. Hubbard's right. like the best iron player in this field, statistically. Yeah. He's he's, he's awesome. there should be no I know he hits the ball probably 270 off the tee, but there should be no imposter syndrome with Hubbard. The dude absolutely flushes the ball with his irons, and he's a really good putter too. What about Bazaden Health? Am I am am I smoking a little too much of the Bazaden Health this week? I mean, that can never end well. The guy was he um Bezaden out modeled out second for me. And I think that's because I completely devalued off the tee and put such a strong emphasis on putting from five to 10 feet in wedge play. And it turns out if golf was completely diminished to how you hit the ball from a hundred to 150 yards and how you put the ball from five to 15 feet, Bezaden out's like the best player in the world. I, I just, I've never had it with Bazaden Hout. Like I, th- I think he's just one of those guys that there's there's a handful of them. There's him. There's Aaron Rye, and they're players that I I think I've got a grasp of what they're like and where they're going to succeed. And it never seems to transpire. And ever, <laughs> I just, yeah, like I just look at Bazaden Hout and just think like he's not going to win a birdie fest. Um, he's obviously won the South African Open at eighteen under by five strokes. His his margin of victories on on the DP World Tour of six strokes, four strokes, and five strokes. Like when he's won, it's been comfortable and. That six-stroke win of Alderama was over John Rahm and three other Spaniards. Like Oof. he's beaten Moronk by four strokes. He's beaten Jamie Donaldson by five strokes. Like he's really, really good at that level. I just don't believe he's the type of player that I think he could definitely be the 54-hole leader and then shoot that 70 on the final day, where he just doesn't he doesn't quite have it in him to go and shoot 64 on the final round. Maybe I'm being harsh. But I mean he was 20th here last year. Like it's it just feels like he's very much going to go and do like a 16th to 24th place finish rather than a contending this week. 
sixth last week at Sanderson yeah. Farms. Yeah. Uh, four point seven on approach, five point one punting. At least he's come. He's it's, he's hitting his irons really well. People, I just don't feel like he ever puts back to back performances together. I don't know if that's just a feeling thing. There's probably more data that actually disproves that feeling. I, but like, I, I think data will be on your side on that one. <laughs> like he seems to like he plays well, people back him, and then he just doesn't happen again. Like he was. Let's just look at it. So like. He finished off 2022, fifth and third, but then he went 11th for the Amex, missed the cut at Phoenix, 58th, 42nd missed cut. Then he was 13th for the player, played poorly at the match play, 19th for the Heritage, missed the cut on the DP World Tour, 23rd at Byron Nelson, missed the cut at the PGA, slightly different, I guess. But like, he just doesn't seem to be able to put two or three performances together. And I don't know what that is. Like, I don't know if he's just never got comfortable with PGA Tour life, whether there's never been two courses at suit him in a row. Like, maybe this full series is the first opportunity he's had to really take advantage of the form i just i can't get him right so i tend to just avoid him <laughs> it's just... anyone anyone else you want to throw out i have one or two more guys i'll i'll mention so chad ramey is Oof. i'm gonna need the, i'm gonna need a hard sell there yeah, so on. he's catching my eye i think he's been a little bit underrated the last kind of few weeks like he's made eight of his last nine cuts he started finishing 19th for the fourth and at 16th last week at the sands and farms he was a 36-hole leader here on debut in 2021, and he's also sixth at the halfway stage last year as well. So as someone that has won on the PJ Tour, albeit at the Corrales, like I really trust him to to kind of get in the mix in the first place. And I don't know that I just sort of remember this differently, but there was kind of a decent amount of hype with Chad Romy when he came off the corn ferry tour the first time, where people believed he'd go and win early, and it didn't really happen. Then he won uh, the Corrales, where I think a decent amount of people were on at short odds. And then he kind of went into the wilderness a bit. And I think people are very quick to write him off. And he's just found his form again. And he strikes me as a player that plays well this time of year. You talk about players that pick things up in, you know, the full series or full, whatever we want to call it this year. He was fourth in approach last week, sixth in tee to green. And he's been good in two starts here. Like it's it's really that simple. 14th and 28th. As I said, 36 hole leader, 63-65 to open on debut. And then last year, 67, 66 to open. So he gets off to a decent fast start both times. I think he's alive for one of those first round leader bets that is a good way of throwing money away. But yeah, Chad Ramey for me. And then the other one was Eric Van Royen, who I just, I've been I was on to- him last week. So frustrating, man. He didn't do a goddamn thing over the weekend. I really thought he had it there for, I mean, he started, he was hitting it so well on Thursday and Friday. And then he did the classic. EVR. He's another one that over the weekend. has won the Barracuda, so knows how to go low in contention. He's finished 30th or better in four straight events. Yeah, he missed the cut here on his debut last year or a couple of years ago. I don't really care. Like 18th, 13th, 5th, and 6th in his last four starts in straight scan approach, 14th, 11th, the last two in C to green. Like he's hitting it really well. 59th in birdie or better percentage, which is going to have him in kind of the top 20, I guess, here in the field. Just trust him to make a ton of birdies. Don't trust him necessarily to win, but I think he'll play really well again uh, in good form. So, yeah, Chad Ramey and Eric Van Royen were the two for me that stuck out around the triple digits. Uh, the last guy I'll mention, uh, this is another player that I bet last week. I think, and he was a popular bet. I think if you bet Alex Smalley last week at 35 40 to 1, and the guy finishes 16th, gains over two strokes, ball striking, putts really well, and is now sitting here at 60 to 1. That immediately stood out to me. I'm just long on this guy. I'm I have a lot of Smalley stock. I'm have no interest in selling it anytime soon. He's a 
wonderful iron player. Uh, he gives himself a ton of birdie opportunities. I kind of prefer him on Bermuda greens, but he still had some success on on bent grass, and we still get kind of a Bermuda rough, Bermuda tee to green that he should be pretty comfortable on. And he's had a lot of he's he's been good at the Amex too, forty seventh year last year, coming off that sixteenth that I mentioned at the Sanderson Farms. I just thought sixty was a very fair number on Smalley coming off a 16th place finish uh, in Jackson where he hit the ball well and now travels to another golf course that should fit his general skill set pretty well. Yeah, I think, look, I think I'm pretty like you. I like Smalley a lot. I think it's one of those ones where he's destined to win a John Deere or a Wyndham, right? Or a, yeah. Like a Firestone, not Firestone, a Sedgefield, whatever, but like he... South wind, like I think he's got that kind of Webb Simpson about him again. Like yeah, <laughs> Webb Simpson, but like he's that type of player. Is right? Webb Simpson playing this week? I feel like at this point we should probably just bet Webb too. <laughs> yeah, he's playing. Um, and interesting enough, two starts ago, finished fifth at the Wyndham, but he's 25 to one. He was fire here at one point, right? He was first, fourth, fourth, seventh, fifteenth, thirteenth. Like, yeah, it's the same type of player, and I think that's to your point. Like, people will look at this guy's wide open, let's get the big hitters, but it is these plodders that can get around and just wedge and putt that I think will be really important. I mean, Ryan Moore's one here, Ben Martin's one here, Martin Laird's one here. Like, they're all these guys. Tom Kim is the elite version of that, I guess, that just wedge and putt their way around here. So, yeah, I think I think he's live as well. Smaller. I think people will look at him and go, like, oh, he wasn't great on this course last year. Let's, let's forget about him. And I don't think you need to have had a brilliant week here in the past to, to really succeed. I guess the other one that played well last week and kind of fits that bit as well is CT Pan. But yeah, I could see again, that every time I think it's a CT Pan week, it never is. So I'm just going to keep avoiding that trap, I guess. Um, yeah. I'm going to stick with Peter quest for one more week at 150 to one, too. You get him at double the number this week after a top 25 finish. I, th- I think that's the thing you've got to look at. Like, I think you've got to ride these guys in the full series. There's not a bunch of events that you're, you're not kind of committed to them for a whole season, right? Like you've got a four or five event window where if they're fluctuating that much in odds when they've done nothing particularly wrong, it would be alarming to kind of fall away, especially with a smaller number, like going from almost double just because it's not a course that you've done well in the past is quite surprising. So as I said, I've kind of gone with the guys that I have and the ones I've mentioned based on their kind of approach playing past form. But you can make, I mean, like, it would be weird to kind of abandon Ben Griffin, I guess. Like, he played really well last week for the most part. I don't want to do it because I've never been a Ben Griffin guy. But if you have been, then <laughs> Eric Cole, same thing. Like, these guys. Yeah, I kind of do fun. like Cole, too. That's a that's a more for DraftKings. I was looking at looking his yeah. way. But but I, I like Cole this week as well. I mean, he's so he's so bad off the tee. Like, that's his one bugaboo right now. And, and I think this is, like, one of the lone golf courses where uh that's not going to hurt him whatsoever this week and he opened for 67 last year it was 21st yeah. after round one before missing the cut so i think they're really important as well as to look at these kind of like if someone missed a cut was there any good in it like that's the main thing you got to look at i think like you look back to someone like a sam Ryder i mentioned earlier like he missed the cut shooting a second round of 64 like just the pick out even in the bad missed cut weeks what well, they've done well um and you'll probably find some good players so there's a lot of kind of fence sitting here and there's a whole range of players that are pretty live. I mean, Troy Merritt's never played well here, but played well. Like 
recently, those types of players, I think, are going to be really live this week. And it's just the beauty of golf that you're going to have to pick one of 1,600 to one options that can that can play really well. Um, all right, Tom. Uh, pleasure as always, my friend. I will let you get get some rest. It's a it's a lot later on uh, in your neck of the woods than it is here in the early afternoon on the West Coast. You know, last thing I was just thinking about this. Have you checked out the David Beckham documentary on Netflix yet? Yes, I'm on episode three. Okay, so I just watched episode one last night, and I think it's good. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm I'm really captivated by it. Uh, so do, before we go into it, do you know the story or is this new to you? Pretty new to me. I mean, obviously, I know the the Victoria Beckham aspect of it, and that seems to be what they're focusing on episode one a lot yeah, about, that, which which is actually, actually a bit frustrating to me because I kind of wanted more on the soccer, and yeah, it you, seems you, like it like, will get more on the soccer. Okay, good, because it seems like in episode one they're putting a lot of air in the Victoria Posh Spice tires. And obviously that should be talked about. I'm I'm incredibly encouraged, interested, intrigued to hear about that as well. But they kind of breezed through those early Man United days, uh, which yeah. I wanted a little bit more on. But I think that's the, you know, that's the difference between a 30 for 30 on Beckham, maybe in a Netflix doc is they're going to, they're going to Netflix's algorithm says, Hey, if we devote 45 minutes of the first episode to posh spice, that our algorithm says that we can get more of the female demographic than if we spend more time on the man United stuff. So I think, I think whenever I see a documentary like this on Netflix or Amazon, I'm assuming there's something is coming and it's a good way to promote it. I.e. Beckham's going to go and buy a team again, or Victoria is going to launch a new Spice Girls reunion or something. product or something. Yeah. yeah. And like, so I always have that a little bit about it, but it is really interesting. And I think that, look, Beckham was, um, I, I loved it. Like, as, as, a, as a soccer fan, I, I loved him. He played for Man United, who I obviously don't support, but like, I thought he was incredible when he got a really, really rough go of it based mainly on the fact that he went out with posh spice right like it everyone just kind of looked him off the pitch and just thought you know like you're just this glamorous person doesn't care but when you actually look into some of the stuff he had to go through which you'll learn in you know episodes two three and four like it's wild like what he had to deal with now versus what soccer players or football players have to deal with these days is ridiculous like to put it into context like if someone misses a penalty for england now they'll probably get a knighthood and become an ob or an mba Whereas he basically just got like threats for doing something in a in a World Cup match, which I won't obviously spoil. But like, it's it is it's pretty captivating. Like we're watching it, and I know the whole story. Like I I kind of lived it. It was really early on in my life, but like I know it, and I'm still like, yeah, that was that was bad. Like he had to go through a lot, and like I think when you write a documentary about yourself or you're you know, producing a documentary yourself, you can make it look worse for yourself, but it wasn't without like cause. Like there was some really horrible moments. So it's really Gary Neville is my MVP so far through episode one. That guy's he's so, unbelievable. He's so strange. Like over here, like he, <laughs> he's one of these people. He's very political. So like people. Hate oh, him. Uh oh, did I, 
Okay. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. My support is my support is mainly from what I've seen in this documentary. Yeah. I have no he, prior knowledge of labor oriented. And then he like kind of contradicts it by being a lot about money. So like everyone kind of has a go at him and then he'll he'll mention something about like Saudi being bad, but then he supports Qatar or whatever. Ah, like Gary. He, he's one of those guys. But in terms of just purely like entertainment factor on these sort of things, he's he's great. But Sir yeah. Alex Ferguson too. I mean, he's he f- seems to me like the Belichick of soccer. Like I had no person. Like right, he he's that stuff is so rich. He he yeah. is um, he just seemed like he God. He had what a twenty year run at Man United, and they were I had no understanding or idea because it's such a big brand even in the U.S. Not being a huge soccer fan, you always know the. Man United, Arsenal, Liverpool. I didn't realize that they went like 25 years without a league title before Beckham. And it was so bleak in the 70s and 80s for them before Ferguson and Beckham came around. I had no idea. And he didn't start, like you won't see it in this documentary because it's not about him, but like he didn't start off great either. Like it took him a while to set the ground running was as the coach as well. So like he, you'll see how very Belichick like he is as it goes on. Very stubborn very like i know best and you're gonna have yeah. to buy it out type thing it, it's very good and i think it's one of those things that you don't realize until you watch these back like because you grow up and you're passionate about like hating man united like you don't support man united you absolutely hated them yeah. you don't appreciate quite how good it was um and i guess they're a little bit like i guess the cowboys they kind of get referred to as these like, this dominant team for a period of time that went so long without a trophy and all that sort of stuff like it's it's very similar to that and Ferguson is just Belichick and I guess you could probably equate Brady to Beckham if you like but like yeah that. it's 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 good like it's, it's a good I'm, documentary it's, I'm it's, pumped for the because I remember playing FIFA that Real Madrid team yeah. that Beckham's later stages of his career was an absolute cheat code in FIFA so I'm excited to we get to Beckham in like the early he was in his early 30s on Real Madrid, right? That's kind of a later stages kind deal of for him. Late 20s, but like yeah. he he um that like the way he moved there will be really interesting. Okay. Like, I'm ex- don't spoil it. I'm excited. I'm so fascinated. I it's good. I love all that stuff because I've been super disappointed by some of the Netflix doc sports documentaries I've found very hit or miss like i thought that johnny manzel one was pretty abhorrent like i i thought they just some of the choices that were made in that documentary i was pretty confused and bummed out by i didn't really love the university of florida one either so i'm excited for to see where this one goes yeah i was very excited about the manzel one like i, I was really interested in it fell a bit just, flat. Like I, yeah. I think it was just a bit like, what did we actually learn about it? Like, yeah. and I just don't think they're ever going to give enough away because otherwise you probably start hating him or, or whatever. So I, I think that was, I didn't watch the Florida one. I haven't watched that yet. Um, but this, this is good. This Beckham one is better than I thought it would be. And for someone that like yourself that has a knowledge of it, but doesn't know the ins and outs, you'll, you'll learn stuff, which is, is exciting. I'm just kind of recounting it and then turning to Shannon going, do you remember this? And she goes, no, no, no. It's really funny. So uh, yeah, you should enjoy it. All right, Tom, uh, we can find you this week on Lost for Words. What else? Just run through everything you're doing this week. Yeah, so just Lost for Words this week. Uh, No DP World Tour stuff. We just got the one podcast tomorrow, Bradley Todd, covering both events, Shriners and the Open de España. 
can follow me on the app formerly known as Twitter because I never know quite how we just called it X anymore. Uh, Tom Jacobs 93. And yeah, I've written a, uh, a column on Odds Checker with the three of the picks that I've mentioned here. So yeah, go over there, have a look, and uh, yeah, you'll get fed up with me by the end of the week, I'm sure. Good to see you, Tom. We'll do it again soon, my friend. All right, that is it for the podcast. Special thanks to Tom. Special thanks to rickrungood.com. And we will be back next week for the Zozo Championship. Until then, best of luck with your bets this week. And we will see you next time. Cheers. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where a mobile steel rims crack It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com